Rita Skimmyhorn was born and raised in Mescouta, Illinois. It was a small town without a lot going on. Growing up in the 1970s, there was one spot where everyone hung out. After football games, after dances, it was the place to be. Pizza Hut was the place to go. This was before pizza delivery was really a big thing. Pizza Hut was a dine-in restaurant with its famous red roof and red plastic cups for sodas. Red checkered tablecloths and a red light that hung over the table. Rita would make a Pizza Hut pilgrimage every Saturday. She'd finance that weekly habit by helping to clean her friend's brother's apartment. Which... It was disgusting. There was dishes that had mold on it, and we had to scrape that off. We'd pick up his clothes, and he would pay us $5. So my friend Denise and I would then walk from the apartment to Pizza Hut with our $5 in our pocket, and we could get a small pizza and two small sodas and still have like, you know, 35 cents left for a tip. What did you order? Small, thin, and crispy pepperoni. Same thing every week. (laughs) <laughs> Let yourself go to Pizza Hut. Would you look at that pizza? For Rita, Pizza Hut wasn't just a restaurant. It was a second home. It's just always been a part of my life. So I think they had to hire me when I turned 16. It was Rita's first job. She still remembers the day she started. April 27th of 1980. <laughs> I was a waitress. Over the next decade, she'd get promoted again and again. And by her mid-twenties, she was a training manager. That meant she was such a Pizza Hut superstar that other managers would learn from her. I just didn't accept substandard performance. And I would tell people, if, if you're not doing something right, either it's because I failed to give you the information that you need to do a good job, you know, or this isn't what you need to be doing with your life. You need to go somewhere else. You know, please don't stay here. <laughs> In 1990, Rita was exactly where she wanted to be, in a job she loved, in her small Midwestern hometown. And then one day that June, she got an unexpected call. It was um, a Sunday morning, which I thought was bizarre. The man on the other end said he was from Pizza Hut's HR department. And he said his name, and I said, who? (laughs) Never heard of him. He told Rita that Pizza Hut headquarters had a new job for her, that they wanted to send her overseas. And I thought it was another manager playing a joke on me. And I was like, that's not funny. I don't know. What are you talking about? I really didn't believe it was real. It was completely real. Pizza Hut was about to play a major role in one of the most significant inflection points in modern history. As the Cold War reached its climax, Rita was getting a chance to be on the front lines. And he said, are you ready to pack your bags? You're going to Russia. This is One Year, a series that brings you the weirdest, wildest, and most captivating moments from a single year in America's recent past. I'm your host, Josh Levine. And in our new season, we're slipping on some incredibly baggy pants. And taking you back to 1990. Uncle Phil, can you take a stroll into the 90s, please? (laughs) Kawabunga. Honey, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. You guys give up? Oh yeah, thirsty for more. This season, you'll hear about the controversial art exhibit that became a First Amendment battleground. The single dad who fought back against big tobacco, all while hiding behind a secret identity. And the high-stakes battle between President George H.W. Bush and broccoli. But first, with the Soviet Union on the brink, an American company got tangled up in geopolitics and made a lot of dough. Pizza Hut's Soviet adventure was unlike any restaurant opening before or since. It involved a fleet of submarines, a very special pizza topped with tuna and salmon, and a restaurant with red checkered tablecloths on a mission to change the world. There it is in the heart of Moscow, as American as, well, pizza. It's almost crazy for any entrepreneur to operate successfully in this country. You kind of became immune to rules. 
you know, it's, this is a little bit like guerrilla warfare. I can do whatever I want here. This is one year, 1990. Pizza Straker. By the late 1970s, Pizza Hut had become America's number one pizza chain. Its parent company, PepsiCo, felt certain that its dine-in charm would win people over around the world. That was the model of Pizza Hut. It was easy, accessible, fun. And the fact that it was pizza, I mean, let's face it, pizza is always popular wherever you are. That's Andy Raffalat. It was his job to plant the Pizza Hut flag across the globe. And business was booming. You know, really, we were sort of throwing restaurants on the ground, uh, left, right, and center. In the late 80s, there were nearly 7,000 Pizza Huts in 54 countries, with combined annual sales of $3.5 billion. It went quite well. (laughs) What can I say? Despite all of that success, PepsiCo's longtime CEO wasn't satisfied. His name was Don Kendall, and there was one market he was desperate to conquer. Here he is in 1975. I think the Soviet Union can end up probably being one of the biggest training partners that we have. Kendall was truly Soviet-obsessed. He made his name in the 1950s by shoving Pepsi into the hands of Nikita Khrushchev. The Soviet leader drank three cups of capitalist soda in front of news photographers. He declared it very refreshing. At that time, our advertising slogan was, be sociable, have a Pepsi. And the headlines across the United States were, Khrushchev learns to be sociable. At a time when American blue jeans and rock and roll were officially banned in the Soviet Union, Pepsi became the first U.S. consumer product broadly available in the USSR. For Don Kendall, that wasn't just a business success story. He believed that corporations were the best hope for international diplomacy. And I'll tell you that in my opinion, you don't change people by isolating them. You change people by having commerce back and forth and bar people talking to their people, and that's how you develop trust. Kendall officially retired in 1986, but the truth was he didn't stop working and didn't let go of his biggest dream. He wanted to keep pushing, to do something big and splashy, to open a Pizza Hut in Moscow. I don't think anybody really really dreamed that it was possible, to be honest. Andy Raffalant had brought Pizza Huts to Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. But what his boss was asking him to do now was kind of absurd. You couldn't just launch a privately owned restaurant in the USSR. The whole concept of private business didn't exist under the communist system. We all recognize that, you know, if this was ever going to happen, that this would be a miracle. But then, in the 80s, a new leader came to power. And under Mikhail Gorbachev, everything started to change. He launched his plan to modernize the system by curbing central planners and introducing a touch of capitalism. He called it perestroika, the reconstruction. Gorbachev's push for reform came when the Soviet economy looked close to collapse, with shortages of everything from shoes to onions. Under perestroika, the USSR would at least experiment with capitalism, including partnerships with foreign businesses. It was a remarkable shift, and it was the crack in the door that Pizza Hut had been hoping for. The Pepsi company confirmed today it plans to open, get this, a chain of pizza parlors in the Soviet Union. For Don Kendall, this was a chance to make history, to make Pizza Hut the first American restaurant chain in the USSR. And the Soviets actually seemed open to it. And now, for the first time on Soviet television, not with the spin most Moscow viewers have become accustomed to over the years, but applause for an American institution. I think it's a very good idea. Probably the Soviet Union should buy the technology of that from Pizza Hut. Now it was on Andy Raffalat to make that joint venture with the Soviet Union happen and to make Don Kendall's dreams come true. Don was clearly a a guy who never took no for an answer. For this deal to come together, 
Andy would first need to win over a bunch of Soviet bureaucrats. So he decided to bring them to his home base in the UK to give them a taste of the Pizza Hut experience. Looked after them very well. Nice hotel. We took them out for dinners. What happened when you took them to the Pizza Hut? They showed polite interest. But these guys, they saw Pizza Hut as just an ordinary place for ordinary families. These government officials hadn't come to London for casual family dining. They asked to see some gambling casinos. I told us I know nothing about gambling casinos. I didn't really fully understand why they wanted it, but yeah, we showed them around some, some of the nicer ones in London. Andy spent the whole trip catering to the bureaucrats' needs and making them feel important. And then one morning, he got a call from the Soviet embassy. And they said, we've had a problem. One of the team members has died. I thought, you must be kidding. Andy was terrified. Here he was, trying to show these Soviet leaders a good time. And one of them died on his watch. Forget about a business deal. This was starting to look like an international incident. So I, I got myself down to the uh, embassy very quickly and said, you know, you know, what do we do about this? And they said, Mr. Afflet, do not worry. They send the car around to the hotel. The guy was gone within minutes. And they said, we carry on with the trip. The dead man notwithstanding, the trip was a success. In early 1989, the bureaucrats gave their blessing. Pizza Hut had been declared suitable for ordinary Soviet families. I don't think it was the uniqueness of pizza that was uh, talking to them. It was the fact that it was a family restaurant. This is what they were after. It had taken years to get that handshake agreement. And for Andy, the real work was just beginning. And we thought, well, OK, what happens from now? How do you actually physically pull it all together? That was the hard part. To pull this thing off, Andy would have to move to Moscow and figure out how the Soviet Union worked. He could see right away that the country was struggling. The food supply situation was, was pretty dire. There is a crowd, but nothing to buy, which leads to shouting matches. It was pretty obvious, just walking the streets, what they wanted. And they wanted to be fed. It was as simple as that. Andy hoped that Pizza Hut could help with that. The first step was finding a location. And officials in Moscow were pretty much useless. They were giving us suggestions of, you know, places in the middle of a forest somewhere because their argument was, you know what, it doesn't matter where you put it, people are going to come anyway. When you say in the middle of a forest, are you exaggerating for effect? Oh, no, why do we, you know, there was camping sites in and around Moscow. And you know, once I'd seen a couple, I realized this was not going to be the direction that we'd be happy with. These Moscow officials were going to be a problem. To get Pizza Hut off the ground, Andy would need a true local partner, someone who could help him navigate the Soviet system. But the tough part was trying to find that individual. Andy saw a bunch of potential candidates, but none of them had a clue about the restaurant world. Then he got introduced to Alex Antoniadi. Alex got started in the hospitality business in the early 1970s, shortly after moving to Moscow from the Soviet Republic of Georgia. He worked his way up from the bottom and soon was running a hip restaurant near the Kremlin. It was a popular restaurant. The grandson of Khrushchev, the grandsons of Brezhnev, his daughters, the minister's kids, all of them came. Alex started managing more places, and he developed a knack for navigating the Soviet bureaucracy. He was a savvy operator, someone who knew how to get things done unofficially. Did you ever have to pay someone, you know, a bribe or, or anything like that? Yes, everything happened. <laughs> That's exactly the kind of know-how Andy Raffalette was looking for. The two men met up at one of the five restaurants Alex was managing at the time. You know, Alex spoke maybe 10, 10 words in English, and I spoke my 20 words in Russian. So we were a great pair in terms of communication. Alex clearly knew how to run a restaurant in the USSR. 
But Andy wasn't sure this Soviet guy understood the concept of a capitalist venture like Pizza Hut. And I said, do you understand what business is? It was at that point, using a few words and a lot of gestures, that Alex let Andy in on a secret. A trick he'd devised that involved making stew. He said, I get given a kilo of meat, and out of that kilo of meat, I make two kilos of stew. Alex was supposed to give the government everything his restaurant earned. But by stretching his meat supply, he made a little extra for himself and his employees, a secret stash that Soviet officials didn't need to know about. He said, does that sort of sound like business? And I thought, Alex, you've cracked it straight away in your system. You understand profit in, in a very simple way. And I, and I thought this was, this was really classic. <laughs> Well, I understood that from the very beginning. Private property. Alex was skeptical about how these new joint ventures with Western companies would actually work. But the world was changing very quickly. The Berlin Wall has suddenly become irrelevant. The East German communist leadership said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more, put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West. At home in the Soviet Union, Alex knew that business as usual was no longer a viable option. The country couldn't rely on its former successes. I understood that the West should help the Soviet Union with new technologies, new ways to run a business, new financial institutions. Everything had to change. Alex agreed to come on board, and the partnership started to pay dividends right away. They convinced the city of Moscow that Pizza Hut should be downtown, not in the forest. They'd actually get locations for two restaurants, one on bustling Kutuzovsky Prospect and the other on the main road leading to Red Square. And we were able to start architects kind of working and planning and all the rest of it. Turning those spaces into Pizza Huts would take a huge amount of work and building materials. Now and again, the construction workers would run out of supplies but they told Andy that everything was under control. All they needed was money for vodka. A whole lot of vodka. I said, what do you need crates of vodka for? They said, don't worry, you just watch us work. With the vodka in hand, the construction guys would hang out on the side of a main highway. And if they saw a truck with cement or something coming, they would just wave a couple of bottles of vodka and the guys would stop and would arrive at our restaurant. This vodka for cement plan worked sometimes, but it wasn't exactly predictable. Andy and Alex needed to move more quickly. So they decided to buy all their materials outside of Russia at an extraordinary price. It was all very complicated. Nails, screws, nothing in that restaurant is gonna be sourced locally. Paper, household equipment, knives and forks. We bought everything from abroad. I can see that it's going to cost us $3 million to put these two restaurants up. $3 million for two pizza huts was very expensive, about eight times the usual cost. But for Andy, the bigger issue was the currency itself. We would not be able to pay for this in rubles. In Moscow, he was swimming in Soviet rubles which had almost no value overseas. Pizza Hut suppliers wanted dollars, which were basically illegal in the USSR. Andy needed to hack the system to find some sneaky way to turn rubles into dollars. Thankfully, his bosses at PepsiCo had solved this exact problem. PepsiCo and the Soviet Union announced a major business deal today. Under the agreement, Pepsi will swap its soft drink for Russian vodka and Soviet-built ships. This was the hack Andy needed to pay for the Pizza Huts. All he had to do was acquire some Soviet submarines and tankers and sell them for American cash. If someone could explain to him how to actually do that. And I said, well, okay, uh, what do we need to do? And they said, go back to Moscow, borrow the, the rubles. Lots of rubles appeared. They went to wherever they needed to go in Mykolaiv. It seems like you have no idea what's going on, basically. No, of course not. I mean, you know, I'm, a re I'm just an ordinary restaurant guy. And there's people around me doing 
clever things. You better hope that they're doing what they're saying they're going to do. Well, yeah. And, and you know, so, suddenly uh, I'm being told that we have millions of dollars that have arrived on our accounts. If you counted up all of the submarines and ships that PepsiCo bought and sold around this time, they technically managed the world's seventh largest navy. So the Pizza Hut cash flow problem was solved. The importers could be paid. And for Andy and Alex, success was close enough to taste. There was enthusiasm, a desire to help the country. I could see equipment arriving, raw materials arriving. Suddenly, this thing was all starting to work. Pizza Hut was on the verge of making history. Somebody else didn't get there first. We'll be back in a minute. For Pizza Hut, the Soviet Union was the ultimate prize, a totally untapped market with an enormous population. But they weren't the only company that wanted to get there first. And in January of 1990, the pizza guys would lose that race. Today we're opening the first McDonald's in Moscow. When the world's largest McDonald's flung open its doors in Pushkin Square, the people of Moscow were ready. 30,000 of them, twice what anyone expected, crammed through the golden arches before the day was done. This woman doesn't know what she just ate, but she says it was unusual and delicious. There's no denying it. Pizza Hut got shoved out of the spotlight by the world's fast food Goliath. But the truth was, these two American chains were doing two very different things. McDonald's was selling Big Macs and fries. Pizza Hut wanted to sell a whole American lifestyle. Because for most people in the USSR, dining out wasn't a thing. Well, it was a sort of closed society in Moscow. Alex Antoniani, who ran the Soviet side of the Pizza Hut venture. Workers couldn't afford to go to cafes and restaurants because of the prices. The elites did go, the ones that had money. Pizza Hut was importing something totally new, a casual sit-down restaurant that served a quality meal for a reasonable price. When you spend time in Moscow, there ain't too many places that have a nice, warm environment. Alex's business partner, Andy Raffalat. We were selling the whole razzmatazz of a American family restaurant. There were loads of people in Moscow hungry for that kind of experience. I was absolutely excited, and many of my friends was absolutely excited. Boris Paikin ran a small restaurant in downtown Moscow. He saw these new Western businesses as powerful symbols of political and social change. We were happy because a couple of my friends was a manager of McDonald's. They had the possibility to see another life, you know. Boris was one of Pizza Hut's first big hires. He was brought on as a manager, and by Soviet standards, he got paid very well. Pizza Hut, uh, for the very beginning, my salary was $5,000. It was, you know, <laughs> like, a, like a millionaire in those times. To fill out the rest of the staff, Pizza Hut placed an ad in the Moscow Communist Youth newspaper. It said, We invite young people, 18 to 25 years old, who are ready to work with enthusiasm. Applications poured in right away, many from people with advanced degrees. At the very beginning, it was uh, high-educated persons. It was a challenge for them. It's a Western business, and uh, people want to try uh, something new. Pizza Hut would hire 300 people, all told. Every one of the cashiers had a banking degree. And some of the kitchen workers had engineering PhDs, but almost no one had experience with Western restaurant service. So as opening day drew closer, Pizza Hut flew in its best trainers from all over the world. One of them was Rita Skimmyhorn of Muscuda, Illinois. Oh, I was excited, hands down. What was the furthest you had traveled before this? Let's see, Alabama. <laughs> 
Pizza Hut headquarters sent Rita to Moscow with a Russian language guide, a camera, and a journal. We left August 10th on my birthday. Did you kind of keep up with the news and geopolitics? Like, did you know much about what was going on in, in Russia at that time? I mean, chichuts, which means a little in Russian. <laughs> but I did know that it was going to be different than what I'm used to here in the United States. Rita's first surprise came when she got off the plane and saw armed men patrolling the airport. But a lot of what she experienced in Moscow felt kind of familiar, including her very modest hotel. Reminded me of band camp in the seventh grade. We called it the the Moscow Country Club. (laughs) At night, Rita slept on a pullout couch. During the day, she teamed up with trainers from Canada, Egypt, and Australia. Their job was to teach the new Russian employees the Pizza Hut way of doing things, with translation help from Boris Paikin. You must just follow the Pizza Hut standard. For example, every customer should be acknowledged immediately at the door. You always use a serving tray when carrying drinks or plates or anything. It's just part of an extension of your hand. After just 15 minutes, bring pizza. We always served the first slice of pizza when it came out as a courtesy to customers. Yes, this is standard. You put just uh, one slice to each plate. That's it. Preparing the staff was just one part of their job. They also needed to prepare the pizza. We started making the dough one month before opening. Finding suppliers for the toppings was a major challenge due to shortages and the Soviet bureaucracy. No, in those times, there wasn't nothing in the grocery store. The shelves was empty, to be honest. The Pizza Hut warehouse is now filled with imported cheese. When they tried to buy cheese locally, state-run cheesemakers said no, because this year's state-set production quota had already been filled. The first pizza that came out of the oven was supposed to be a supreme, but they didn't have any mushrooms. It did have cheese, though and pepperoni, sausage, hamburger, onion, and green peppers. And they cut it all into little bite-sized pieces, and we all got to take a bite of the very first pizza made in Russia. The employees had been hired and trained. The ovens were fired up. There was just one thing left to do. Opening day was September 11th, 1990. I wasn't really nervous about it, just excited that it was finally happening. Crowds of Muscovites gathered outside Pizza Hut waving tiny white flags. Souvenirs decorated with the chain's red roof logo, the stars and stripes, and the hammer and sickle. It felt like a national holiday. And at noon, the celebration officially began. Not far from the Moscow food lines, they were fighting their way into Pizza Hut. There were a shitload of people there. There was a huge line just wrapped around the building. You know, hundreds of meters, 150 meters, and there were policemen there to patrol it. Just to even try to go in and out of the restaurant was a little scary. Pizza Hut was so popular on opening day that the doors had to be locked in between seatings, with customers let in and out a few at a time. Once they did get inside, the main Moscow restaurant felt like pretty much every other Pizza Hut complete with brass tram and fake tropical plants. Everything was the highest standard. All the floors were covered with beautiful carpeting. There were comfortable sofas and red soft beautiful chairs. People came in and looked around, and it surprised them. One customer said it looked like a museum. Another called it a piece of America. That was a pretty accurate review. But Pizza Hut did make one concession to local taste. On the Moscow menu is a seafood special, pizza topped with salmon, sardines, and onions. It had sardines, I believe anchovy, tuna, and prongs on it. It was okay. (laughs) The pizza, seafood and otherwise, got all the headlines. But it wasn't the biggest drawing card. (laughs) Salad bar, wow. It's amazing. We sold a huge amount of vegetables. The salad bar was a Pizza Hut staple. But in the Soviet Union, the concept was totally new. And in the face of continuous shortages, the bounty of fresh produce seemed too good to be true. For the customers, you know, they never saw such kind of service. 
when the waitress provide with the bowl and invite them to the salad bar, could they take everything? Yes, yes, you can get whatever you want. The salad bar wasn't identical to what you'd find in an American pizza hut. There was cabbage instead of lettuce. And the buffet in Moscow wasn't all you can eat. Customers couldn't go back for seconds, but they did come up with an ingenious workaround, a way to fill their salad bowls beyond the rim. The key was using breadsticks as edible support columns to make the walls of the bowl taller. So they put just a little bit salad, then they uh, stick uh, these breadsticks, and (laughs) they increase the capacity of the bowl just twice. The Soviets wanted Pizza Hut, and PepsiCo's Don Kendall was delighted to give it to them. Today, we are helping to build democratic institutions and free markets in the East. This is an era of incredible change, unprecedented in both speed and importance. Don Kendall had come one year before the opening. He looked at the building and told me, Alex, never. You're never going to make it. And then he came one year later and said, Alex, you make. For decades, Kendall had been pushing the idea that American business could change the world. Now, in Moscow, he was watching it happen with Alex and Andy by his side. Kendall's sort of dreams and visions had been realized. And I think, no doubt, opening day fused it all together and you you realized we're here to stay. Pizza Hut expects to serve 50,000 customers a week. 50,000. After opening day, it was hard not to feel optimistic. But just a few days later, Soviet officials showed up at the main restaurant near Red Square. They were there to deliver an alarming message. Pizza Hut was getting shut down. They put a rope and a seal across the door. That means the government has closed it. You're not allowed to work. Let's take a quick break. Hey listeners, the holiday season is upon us, and The Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. Browse our selection of hand-poured candles, classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. From November 24th to November 27th, that's Black Friday through Cyber Monday, we're offering 30% off all items in the store. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com slash shop. That's slate.com slash shop. Happy shopping. In his 20 years working in Soviet restaurants, Alex Antoniati had developed a routine with the government health inspectors. When they showed up, he'd give them a little something to make them go away. Usually that's all it took the inspectors didn't actually want to inspect anything. I usually didn't have any problems with them. Everything was worked out in advance. They would come, inspect the place, take, and leave. That's it. That's how it went in the old Soviet Union. But in 1990, things were supposed to be different. Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika reforms meant the start of a new era, So when the health inspectors showed up at Pizza Hut not long after opening day, Alex didn't offer them any bribes. Instead, he told them to do their jobs and check whatever they wanted to check. I was sick and tired of all of them. You have to pay them or give them a bribe. I didn't want it to be like that. The system had changed, and they had to change too. It turned out the inspectors weren't looking to change. When Alex failed to give them anything, they declared that this spotless Pizza Hut was unsanitary. And that was it. Pizza Hut's Soviet debut was a lesson in capitalism navigating the murky waters of communism. The firm's two restaurants barely opened before they were shut down by Soviet authorities. 
It had taken an enormous international effort for Pizza Hut to make it to the USSR. Now, just like that, some corrupt officials had put the entire project in danger. But Alex refused to be intimidated. He reopened the restaurant against their orders. He was defying the inspector's authority and risking imprisonment. Three days later, I was invited to the district prosecutor's office. I came there and the officer told me, you violated that law, you're incriminated with such and such criminal article, and you can face one to three years in jail. Alex thought he had only one move left. He pleaded with one of the officers to come with him to Pizza Hut for a personal tour. I said, let's try the pizza. Long story short, I convinced him to come and I showed him everything. The storage, the production facilities. He was stunned when he saw all of it. A week later, Alex received a notice. The case against him had been dropped. But after that whole ordeal, he didn't want any more trouble. From then on, whenever the inspectors came, he immediately handed them four boxes of pizza. And the Pizza Huts never failed inspection again. In the Western media, the Moscow Pizza Huts got portrayed as a huge success story. The two restaurants served as many customers as 10 American Pizza Huts combined. And they weren't just celebrated as a corporate triumph. The Pizza Huts were changing lives. Dimitri works at Pizza Hut, which opened two Moscow branches in September. I like very much the American style of working. He also likes the money, more than three times the average Soviet wage. While Dimitri worked at Pizza Hut, his girlfriend Nadia was a cashier at McDonald's. Where I was working before, it was boring. I was always tired. Now I'm happy. Promotion, profit. Ideas so alien to most Soviets are now a way of life for Dimitri and Nadia, a couple of fast food kids with big dreams for the future. Those fast food kids were becoming Americanized in all kinds of ways. That Moscow seafood pizza with tuna and salmon wasn't a huge seller. Soviet customers wanted pepperoni. But some elements of the local culture did survive, even inside an American restaurant. Pizza Hut's Rita Skimmyhorn and Boris Pikin say there was one thing in particular that their staff didn't want to do. Follow up with customers to see if they were enjoying their meals. And they kind of didn't understand why you would go back and they have their food. What are you asking them? What do you need to know from them? When somebody asks you, do you like your food? People just like question, why you ask me about this? It's not your fucking business. Oh, sorry. It's not your business. <laughs> there were other challenges, too. Pizza Hut had split its main restaurant on Kutuzovsky Prospect into two sides. One of them, for international customers, accepted dollars. The other, for Muscovites, only took rubles. There was a lot more traffic on the ruble side. Pizza Hut boss Andy Raffalat. When the ruble customers get in, number one, I find out it's about the only place in town where beer is sold freely and available. Secondly, they all light up their cigarettes and create a fug that sets off all the fire alarms and I'm thinking, this is not the way I want to go. Andy banned beer and smoking on the ruble side. With that, Pizza Hut became more of a family restaurant. And the lines outside got a bit shorter. It was still really busy, and the teams did great. Now that the ovens were cranking out pizzas, Rita's job as a trainer was essentially done. Rita and the rest of the international crew headed home at the end of September 1990. But they left their trainees with a gift, a song they'd written to celebrate Pizza Hut's arrival in Moscow. Now all of you take heed to what we tell you. The future of success is in your hands. So remember all the things that we have taught you, and you'll make the greatest pizza in the land. The ballad ends with a promise for the future. You all are Pizza Hut. You all are Pizza Hut. The way you smile, they come from near and far. You all worked very hard. You're held in high regard. You're the pride of the USSR.
Going into 1991, the Moscow Pizza Huts were still drawing big crowds. But the country itself was struggling. Several human rights groups staged a march to the center of Moscow. Their main concern, signs that Mikhail Gorbachev, faced with increasing anarchy in the nation, may sacrifice democracy for social order. Food and medicine were scarce. Inflation soared. Pizza Hut was forced to raise its prices by 40%. In an interview with the New York Times, Andy Raffalat said that building a business in the Soviet Union was like setting up an island in an ocean. You hope it will survive the storm. We knew that at some stage or other, this whole pack of cards on the Soviet system was going to collapse. The only question was, would this experiment ride through it or would we close up shop? The cards started to collapse in the summer of 1991. Good morning. Mark the date well. August 19th, 1991. Historians are likely to be analyzing the events of this day for generations to come. By this point, Andy had moved away from Moscow, leaving the operation of both Pizza Huts to his partner, Alex Antoniati. But Andy would still pop back over every few months to check in. On the morning of August 19th, he was about to board a plane to the USSR when he got a phone call from Alex. And he says, Andy, I'm not sure that you should be coming over because we've got tanks uh, parked outside our restaurant. It was impossible to drive through Moscow. It was all blocked with tanks. Tanks were everywhere. That show of military power was coming from opposition forces inside the Soviet Union. They wanted the country's reformist leaders gone. And on August 19th, it looked like they'd get their way. Mikhail Gorbachev was removed from power today in a pre-dawn coup by communist hardliners backed by troops and tanks. The hardliners say the country has become ungovernable because of perestroika. Gorbachev, who was on vacation, was placed under house arrest at his dacha. The coup's leaders also wanted to arrest Boris Yeltsin, the new progressive leader of Soviet Russia. But Yeltsin managed to take refuge inside the parliament building in Moscow. In the streets, his supporters cheered him on. Inside the building was the one man who has the popular appeal that might yet reverse this right-wing coup d'etat. An encouraged Yeltsin went outside, stood on a tank, and called on the Soviet people to make their voices heard. It is a coup by criminals, said Yeltsin, who called for a general strike across Russia. Of course, I didn't open the restaurant. I closed it and stayed there for three days. Hold up in the pizza hut just feet away from all the tanks, Alex decided to seize the moment. He sent for the restaurant staff and got the ovens back up and running. And we prepared boxes of pizza, 50 to 60, I don't remember how many exactly. Then I called for a manager in a Pizza Hut uniform. Pizza Hut was not typically a delivery chain, but this was a special occasion. The Moscow crew shipped off all those pizzas and 20 cases of Pepsi to the parliament building to fortify Yeltsin and his supporters against the coup. Alex had inserted Pizza Hut into a political crisis. And thanks to -to wall-to-wall coverage on CNN, everyone around the world knew it. And just like that, all of America, the whole world, saw ads. Pizza Hut helped the government of Russia. Yeltsin sent me a piece of paper. It said, thank you for your help. I lost it. I don't know where it is now, but that's it. That's the whole story. The Soviet army retreats from Moscow. An old-fashioned coup fails. Alex had bet on the winning side. The coup lasted just a few days, and Mikhail Gorbachev regained his position as head of the USSR. But a lot of his power and influence went to the guy who got all that pizza, Boris Yeltsin, the public face of the anti-coup resistance. Just four months later, Gorbachev stepped down. I am ceasing my activities in the post of president of the USSR. The next day, December 26, 1991, the Soviet Union officially dissolved. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. In an instant, the Soviet Union became 15 independent nations. In the years that followed, 
The economy collapsed in those post-Soviet states, and political instability became the rule. It wasn't long before tanks rolled in front of the Moscow Pizza Huts again. It was in October 1993. When I came to work, tanks were standing there again. That's when I understood that it would last forever. This was the chaos that Mikhail Gorbachev had left behind. His economic reform plan, Perestroika, had opened up the USSR, but also destabilized it. In the end, maybe it was all too much, too quickly. For PepsiCo, the fall of the Soviet Union had made everything more complicated. Remember all those Soviet ships that Pepsi was buying and selling? That fleet now belonged to the newly independent Ukraine, and the Ukrainian government wanted in on the deal. And in Russia, the promise of a new era of international collaboration started to evaporate. Bear in mind, this is when mafia was starting to take shape in Moscow. By the mid-1990s, Andy Raffalat was mostly watching from afar. But he saw enough to realize that the project he'd helped build was teetering. My positive picture was always, the people are great. The system sucks, basically. Yeah, That's the way it is. But I couldn't say that you know, when I was working there. Boris Pikin stayed at Pizza Hut and tried to hold it all together. But one day around 1998, he remembers someone walking in and demanding money. You must pay rent for me because the building belongs to me. I bought it. (laughs) The city of Moscow had owned the buildings and never charged the Pizza Hut's rent. Now, apparently, that had changed without any warning. How could he buy this uh, building? I don't know. And nobody explained me. You know, those times, nobody understand what's going on in the economy, you know. Boris had hired the enthusiastic young Russians who were desperate to work at an American restaurant. He'd seen customers build mega salad bowls out of breadsticks. And now, he watched both of the Moscow Pizza Hut shut down, unceremoniously. And uh, that's it. Nobody can do nothing. Boris went on to run a Canadian bagel franchise in Moscow, but his heart remains with Pizza Hut. When we spoke on Zoom earlier this year, he showed me a corporate award he'd won back in the 90s. It's a silver plaque with an image of a Pizza Hut etched in the center. After three decades, that picture hasn't faded at all. No regrets. I absolutely don't regret the experience I had. What happened was beautiful and good. Therefore, what's the sense in regretting it? Alex Antoniotti believed in perestroika. That's why he joined up with Pizza Hut. Because he wanted the Soviet Union to modernize and embrace the rest of the world. Now, he's living in Spain. And when he looks back at the Gorbachev era he sees an enormous missed opportunity. Nobody in Russia knew how to do business before. All of us had our guesses, but they showed us that it can be done. Now, it's changed for the worse. Today, no one has accepted anything, and the people are not grateful. While the Soviet Union ceased to exist, Gorbachev himself didn't disappear right away. In 1997, he defended his legacy in one of the strangest ways possible. He made a Pizza Hut commercial. It opens with Gorbachev standing beside his granddaughter. They're walking through the snow in Moscow, with St. Basil's Cathedral as the backdrop. After a few moments, they step out of the street and into the warm embrace of a Pizza Hut. It's Gorbachev, says a young man. His father growls. Because of him, we have economic confusion. The son retorts. Because of him, we have opportunity. They argue back and forth until the matriarch of the family says her piece. Because of him, we have many things. Like Pizza Hut. Everyone in the restaurant rises from their seats, their pizza slices in hand, to salute the former Soviet leader. And Gorbachev beams in appreciation. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut.
for Gorbachev and Pizza Hut. That commercial was a fantasy. The ad didn't air in Russia, where the architect of Perestroika was widely hated. And the Pizza Huts themselves wouldn't even last a decade. Pizza Hut's parent company, now known as Yum Brands, did make another run at the Russian market. This time, most of its restaurants were KFCs. But after Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Yum announced it was leaving Russia entirely. Looking back, American casual dining didn't alter the course of history. It succumbed to it. But the people who worked and ate at the Moscow Pizza Huts do still remember the pepperoni and the red checkered tablecloths and what they represented. The change wasn't always an empty promise. That sometimes, if you waited in line, you could grab a slice of it. Next time, on One Year 1990. In Chicago, a mysterious vigilante fights back against the tobacco industry, one billboard at a time. He had to stand on top of my car to get on the ledge where the billboard was. People were looking at us, and I was like, oh my God, and here comes a police car. If you want to hear all of our one-year episodes without any ads, you should subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's website. And at the end of the season, you'll be able to hear a special behind-the-scenes conversation with our team about how we put together our 1990 stories. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash oneyearplus. Again, that's slate.com slash oneyearplus. This episode was written by Kelly Jones and me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Kelly Jones and Evan Chung, with additional production by Olivia Briley. It was edited by Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for the season. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1990 at oneyear at slate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Katya Zagvaskina, Anton Antoniadis, Kate Dabrinina, Judith Brown, Glenn Tucker, Oleg Smirnoff, Jonathan O'Sullivan, Sarah Fentum, Justin Trieger, Sophie Summergrad, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more from 1990.